I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. It's really cool to see how God is, is just drawing people to come and learn the Bible. For many of you, it's so weird. I know it was so weird for me the first time I came into a church like this where I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know you could bring your Bible and learn from the Bible. So please feel free to keep the Bible, but we hope that you'll start reading it and that you'll find, much like we're finding, that when it comes to Jesus, right, you must be here for some reason. Either you're curious or maybe someone invited you or you just have sent something missing, but you thought you'd give church a try. Much like in Jesus' day, he had a lot of people clamoring around him and scoping him out, but they had different levels. Some of them were simply curious. They, they wanted to see who he was. And then some of them moved from that to becoming convinced, like, I think he really is the Son of God. And then at some point they made a commitment and that's our desire for you, not because we have anything to gain, but because we believe that that's what Jesus wants. He said, go and preach and teach about me. So we make a big deal about Jesus, and we, we go through the Bible because the Bible makes a big deal about Jesus. So we're studying the Gospel of Mark, and we're finding that the Gospel of Mark is designed to clarify who Jesus is. Because so many people have just enough about Jesus to be mixed up. So the Gospel of Mark in the first eight chapters, eight chapters is going to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ that God promised, but that he's also the Son of God. But once you get a focus on, okay, if he's really who he says he is, then I have to ask myself, am I committed to him? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? You're not a Christian because you go to church. You're a Christian because you've experienced his forgiveness and you've become a follower. So last couple of weeks, we've looked at Jesus' announcement and preparation of, of the Messiah. But today we're going to look at an aspect of Jesus that we want to clarify, and that's his authority. <clears throat> so we're going to begin in verse 21. We're going to go through this chapter, and we're going to find that one of the things that stands out in this section is the authority of Jesus. Look with me in Mark chapter 1, verse 27. It says, they were all amazed and they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. So this word authority is going to be used over and over in the Gospel of Mark. So there's a lot of, you could sort of like Jesus like a diamond, you could look at many different aspects of him, but what does it mean that Jesus has authority and what are the implications of that? When he came out of the grave, the Bible says that he went to his disciples, he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So who's the boss around here? Jesus is like, I'm the boss of the universe, right? And there's nobody above me. So find your place and figure out who I am and what it would look like to follow me. And so we're going to look at four displays of Jesus' authority. Mark selects these four, being led by the Spirit. And the first one is found in verses 21 through 28. Jesus goes into a synagogue and here we're going to find that Jesus shows his authority in two ways. Number one, he shows a command of scripture. He, he doesn't wince. He speaks the truth of God with a deep certainty. And they're struck by that. They're going, whoa, this guy teaches with authority. But then he has a confrontation with Satan in which he casts out a demon. They go, whoa, this guy has authority. So if you're taking notes, then the first thing we're going to see is the authority of Jesus with his command of scripture 
and with his confrontation over Satan. Look at verse 21. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, if you've never learned about Capernaum, look it up sometime in a Bible dictionary, look it up online. If you've been to the the Holy Land, there's the Sea of Galilee. It's way up north, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And up there on the coast is a town called Capernaum, which was known for commercial fishing. It was right on a trade route, so there was a lot of business. And it was a place where people who wanted to kind of get away from the the high stress of the Roman political regime went up there. There were a lot of Gentiles up there. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. But Jesus spent a lot of his ministry up in Capernaum. Jesus said, I don't even have a house. He goes, I don't even have anywhere to lay my head. But it looks like from this passage that Jesus might have lived a lot in Peter's house, which was at Capernaum. So what Jesus regularly did is that he would go into the synagogue. You see, the Bible didn't command the Jews to build synagogues. That was sort of their idea because when the temple was torn down for a time, they wanted to continue to meet. So they would build any city that had more than 10 Jews. They would build this little synagogue. And most of you are still doing that, right? There's a synagogue right down the street. The word just means a gathering place. And it's where Jews who want to worship the God of the Old Testament gather to read the scriptures. And so it was Jesus' custom to go into the synagogues and to begin to teach as he's introducing his ministry so this teaching is going to be really interesting the word teaching in mark is used 35 times but but what we find and as you're reading through mark jesus doesn't mark doesn't emphasize what he teaches right like if you have a red letter bible where the words of jesus are in red which by the way they're no more authoritative right all scriptures inspired by god there's not a lot of red letters in mark because Mark's not focusing on what he taught, the content, but how he taught. He taught with such certainty. It's not that he doesn't include his teaching, but if you're reading Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, the parables of the kingdom, chapter 13 of Matthew, Matthew 23 through 25, all words of Jesus. But what strikes us about Jesus' authority is the way he teaches Mark says in verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So that there was a sense in which Jesus would just say something, and, and they were struck by that. And part of the reason for that is most people at this time didn't have education. They, they didn't go away to college. A lot of them couldn't even read. And so a scribe was sort of the local guy who was in charge of a lot of things. Scribes were considered the professor of the Bible. They were the moralist. Most scribes were lawyers. So if you were in Capernaum, you needed a civil lawyer. You'd see a scribe. And they they even functioned in, in such a way that people deferred to them. If they entered the room, everyone would stand up. They would often be called rabbi, which in Hebrew means my great one or rabbi. And so these were like prestigious people, but there was something about the way they taught. When they taught the Bible, the Bible says Jesus didn't teach like them. And we know that from extra-biblical literature that they were just blabbing on about tradition. You know, so-and-so says we should wash our hands like this. Who said so-and-so says we can't pull a chair across the floor because we're not allowed to plow on the Sabbath. 
who so-and-so says, and they just kind of had a sense of no certainty, no authority. And Jesus would get up and said, this is what you've heard, but this is what I say. And so we're struck with the authority of Jesus in which we really need to come to grips with, hey, all of us have some authority for what we believe, right? Everybody has an authority for what you believe, even if you're an atheist, right? You believe something about God. And so if I were to ask you, what's your authority? If you're an atheist, you go, it's right here. Is this little thing right here, my brain. I've determined that there is no God. I know pretty much everything. I've been everywhere behind every planet. I know, so that's your authority. Now, if you go to church, you might say, well, at, at my church, our authority is tradition, right? But Jesus made it very, very clear that the only authority that he was interested in is the word of God. Jesus said, why would you listen to your traditions and forsake the word of God? So for those of you that sort of just getting in the game or those of you who are sharing with others, realize that their church might be saying, you have to do this and this, and if you say these prayers, you're forgiven, and you know, this and that about whatever. And you go, where do you get that from? Well, that's just what we believe. Jesus just came on and said, I'm telling the truth. Now, this is what I say. And that struck them. So he commanded the word of God. But then also, he's going to have a showdown with Satan. He's going to confront Satan. Look at verse 23. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. What does that mean? Like somebody in the audience was possessed by a demon. Mark uses the word unclean spirit 11 times in this book. And 13 times, he says, this man was possessed by a demon. And so in that time, this is still happening, folks, right? We don't see it as much in some cultures, but this is still happening. And in some cultures, there's tremendous demonic possession, supernatural activity in the spirit world. And we could talk another time about why that is. But bear in mind that Satan establishes his dominion over all the earth. The Bible says the whole world lies in the power of Satan, but he especially gets his grip on some people. And so in the first century, he had just devastated the, the, the land of Jesus. But God had promised in the book of Zechariah that when the Messiah comes, he said, I'm going to open a fountain for cleansing. And you could write this down. In Zechariah 13, he said, in that day, I'll cut off the idols I'll remove the false prophets and I will remove the unclean spirits from the land. And so what we're going to see in Mark is that there's this great conflict between Jesus and Satan and his minions. These demons, they're going to confront Jesus. And what's striking is, as we're clarifying who Jesus is, we're going to see this repeated phrase. The people keep saying when they see Jesus, who is this? What's, who is this guy? What's... What's he like? The demons have none of that. Every time the demons see him, they go, I know exactly who you are. And Mark does that on purpose. So let's look at this encounter with a demon. It says, the man who had the demon said, what do we have to do with you, Jesus? Now that was a, a figure of speech, like, hey, we got nothing in common here. In Philly, it would be like, talking to me, right? He, so the demons speak through this man, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now look at this. I know who you are. They're not going, who is this guy? I've never seen him before. In fact, every time the demons see Jesus, they go, we know who you are. And they know that Jesus is going to throw them into hell. 
They're like, are you going to put us there now? So that, that ought to cause you to think, wait, this Jesus, wow, the, the demonic world knows who he is. So Jesus says to him, be quiet and come out of him. Uh-oh, is he going to listen? What if he says, I don't have to listen to you? Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and, and came out of him. Literally, it's tearing him, right? Now, when the people saw this, they're like, wow, the dude just taught with authority. Now he just confronted Satan. Look at this verse, 27. It says, they were all amazed. They were all talking to one another. What is this? Who is this? You could translate this literally. Who is this? He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So I don't know where Jesus is in your life, but, but you ought to ask yourself, does he, does he have the final word in what I believe? Is he my authority in, in what he teaches? And does he have authority over me in such a way that he's captured me? Or am I still being held by demons in one way or another? And we'll talk about that. Not that you're demon-possessed. So his first expression of his authority is his command of Scripture and confrontation of Satan. But the second thing he's going to do now in verse 29 to 34 is he's going to, he's going to actually show us that he has the power to conquer the curses of sin. This is really important because if you're a Christian, most unbelievers struggle with this. And we do at times too. If there's a God who loves the world and is all-powerful, why is this world so messed up? Like, what? Someone abused a baby? What? A, a, a dictator slaughtered a thousand people? What? There's a famine and millions of people are starving? We look at this broken world and, and we try to go, how can this be? But the Bible tells us why the world is the way it is. Because right now, it's under a curse. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and, and like it or not, God pronounced a curse on all of creation. He told Adam, you're going to die, and so that's where death comes from. And normally death often comes from sickness, and so, so there's all kinds of diseases and sickness and problems and mental illness and, and trouble, right? Conflict, relational conflict, and creation itself is cursed. But one of the hopes of the Old Testament is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to reverse and conquer the curse. So when God cursed the world, he goes, thorns and thistles it's going to bring forth. And so we're all struggling with, why did you make poison ivy? What in the world purpose of mosquitoes, you know? Why? We're throwing up, oh God, I promise I'll be a better Christian. Just don't let me throw up anymore. We, we deal with sickness. So Jesus is going to show his authority to conquer many of the curses of sin. It's going to start with an individual and then it's going to spread to many people. It says, immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, if you read this chapter, you go, why did Mark say immediately 11 times, right? Mark actually says immediately 45 times in, in this book. It's not as though Jesus is like a Tasmanian devil. But Mark's just showing the the, the authority of this, this Christ. He's a man on a mission. Everything he does is deliberate and directed and purposeful. Now, ironically, this is the busiest recorded day in the life of Jesus. He may have had a busier day, but he was up till midnight at least, right? And so Mark's showing us this, 
this fervor and this passion. So they get out of synagogue services. Everybody's chattering about Jesus. They go for lunch to Peter's house. And it says in verse 29, immediately they came into the house of Simon and Andrew. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to him about her. Now, it's interesting that he says she was sick with a fever because why didn't he just say she wasn't feeling well? But fevers at that time were often thought of as divine punishment or demon possession. In fact, in the Middle East, there's still Bedouins who believe that somehow demons and, and fevers are associated. But, but there's no evidence here that, oh, this lady was demon-possessed, or, but, but still, she had a fever. And so immediately they spoke to him about her, and it says he came and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. So Jesus is showing, look, I have the power to cure the curse and consequences of sin. And, and I find that encouraging, right? Even though he doesn't always choose to do it, I, I really am glad to know that I can ask Jesus to do something. And the Bible says he can send forth his word of healing. But notice that as he speaks this word of healing to her, it says the fever left her, but then Mark adds this, and she began to wait on them. And you're like, you know, that's a problem. Even the Bible's, you know, so gender insensitive, you know, they just sent her into the kitchen. That's not the point here, right? The point is that People who come into a, a, a connection with Jesus and experience his compassion, the way of Jesus is then to express it through service. So Mark's not just throwing this out there. This is going to be a theme, this word of service. In fact, in verse 13, it's the same Greek word. The angels were ministering to him, so they served him. This woman gets healed and she begins to serve Jesus. Later on, Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, same word. He said, I came to serve and to give my life. And so just remember that, brothers and sisters, that the way of Jesus is the way of experiencing his touch and then expressing it through service. And so it's, it's worth asking. This is why we encourage you. We don't want you to just attend church, but to get involved in community and then to figure out, and we'll help you find ways to serve Christ by serving your family, but also serving in the church. I mean, it's grievous at times to, to hear how often, hey, we can't get enough people to set up chairs. We can't get enough people. So if you're not doing anything and you've been forgiven by Christ, you really ought to step it up and say, Lord, show me where I can serve you. We'll find a place for all of you. And so Jesus is, is modeling for us this wonderful power over the curse of sin. And now he's going to broaden it. So he not only heals Mary... But notice verse 32, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Now, at that point, I would have said, why didn't you come in the day? I'm closed, right? Well, they didn't come in the day because it was the Sabbath, right? And remember, for the Jews, the Sabbath ended at when the sun went down. So as soon as it got dark, they're dragging all their friends. Hey, heal my family. Cast out this demon. And so Jesus is working late into the night. He didn't say, hey, come back in the morning. But notice, it says he healed many who were ill with various diseases. He cast out many demons. But then it says he was not permitting the demons to speak. Well, why not? Because they knew who he was. There it is again. We know who you are, right? Now, 
I'm like, okay, I see. Jesus had some busy days. But I would expect. And on the next day, Jesus took a day for personal refreshment. I mean, after all, you know, if I do something extra for Jesus, I need to have a personal care day. But instead, look what it says. And this is kind of funny. It says, and early in the morning while it was still dark, he rose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. That makes me uncomfortable because I don't like to do that. After I'm busy, I just feel like I deserve a break. You know, I just preached. I don't need to pray for a couple days, right? So what we're learning is that Jesus models for us this communion with God and the necessity to not just be a public helper serving people and busy, but to be a private person who's enjoying your relationship with Christ. Because what good is it if we're all busy out there in public, but, but we don't spend time alone with him? And so this leads us to the third way that Jesus shows his power. He's going to clarify the purpose of his coming. Jesus, what are you doing down here on earth? If you really are the son of God, why are you down here? So he goes out and, and, and just picture Jesus praying and, and saying, Father, I'm here for you. What, what will you have next? I'm beginning my ministry. May the Spirit lead me. So verse 36 and verse 37 introduce us to Peter. Now Peter's, Peter's a great guy. He gets sometimes beat up too much. But Mark definitely shows Peter's weakness. Peter has the capacity of being at counter odds with Jesus, but he doesn't mean to be, right? In other words, he means well, but he's going exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants. So we see it a little bit here. We're going to see it big time later. In verse 36, Simon and his companions hunted for him. Now, the word there translated hunted, there's a reason why it's translated hunted, right? Because they're hunting for this guy. They're not just going... Yeah, you know, let's, anybody seen, have you seen Jesus? I mean, these guys are hunting. Uh, hunting, we will go. They go we got to find him. Well, why? I mean, Peter gets it. Jesus, this is your coming out, man. we got to get you on Instagram, Facebook. We're going to have a press conference. I've got, there are people waiting. This is big. So what are you doing? So they find Jesus. Now, now think about this, the magnitude of this. They found him and they said, Everyone's looking for you. I don't know if Jesus said anything else, but he may have looked at him like, okay, what's the point? Well, get back. What are you doing out here? Show yourself. Come on, man. This is your big splash. But look what Jesus says. He said, you know, no, no, this is what we're going to do. I want us to go somewhere else. What do you mean somewhere else? You got a billion people or whatever waiting for you in Capernaum. I know that's an exaggeration. He says, let's go to the towns nearby. Well, what for? He says, I want to go preach there. What do you mean you want to go preach there? Yeah, he says, that's what I came out for. Came out? This is your big coming out? Well, there's two possibilities, maybe more for what he means by came out. He could just mean, that's why I came out of Capernaum, because I want to go preach somewhere else. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he means, that's why I came out of heaven. I was up in heaven. Why in the world would I leave heaven? I was, I was perfectly happy and content. But I came out of heaven, 
because the Bible says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The first way is by placing himself on the cross, but the other way is by proclaiming his message, by telling other people about him, by calling people. In fact, this idea of proclaiming, in, 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 literally when I got done reading this quote from a commentary, I'll, I'll tell you what I wrote. He says, there's a wide variety of proclaimers in this Gospel of Mark. The same word is used of Jesus, John the Baptist, a cleansed leper, a healed demoniac. The disciples, even the crowds, are proclaiming Jesus. And I put in quotes, and I have joined that sacred throng of proclaimers. What a privilege it is to be able to tell other people about Jesus, right? It's not, well, you're, you're the pastor. That's what we pay you to do. We, we pay you to be good. We're good for nothing. I'm like, no, wait, no, that's not what you meant. All right, so, so this week my daughter texted me and she says, hey, now my little granddaughter Peyton is seven. She said, Peyton told her friends about, her friend about Jesus for the first time. I was like, that's cool. So which friend was it? You know, tell me about it. What did she say? Well, she told her that Jesus died on the cross for her. Well, what did her friend say? Her friend said, that's weird. <laughs> right? Now think about that, because this is a great teaching moment for you and me. And that's exactly why I don't talk about this stuff. I just witness by my life. I mean, the last thing I need is people to think I'm more weird than I already am, right? What a teaching moment. Too many parents have this mindset, protect your children from any suffering or persecution, right? That's not what Jesus said. Prepare them. And shame on us if we're too afraid to ever talk about Jesus because someone might think we're weird, right? The Bible says if you're going to please God, you cannot be a servant of Christ. I mean, please man. Jesus said, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. You want everybody to like you? Never say anything about Jesus. But if you want Jesus to be pleased with you, start talking about him. You don't have to be rude, obnoxious. You don't have to stand on a street corner. But we're called to go and tell others how the Lord had mercy on us. And know this, that some of them are going to say, you're crazy. And rather than that hurting your faith, that should strengthen your faith. Don't quote them, but just in your mind go, Thank you, you just encouraged me to believe the Bible even more because the Bible says the preaching of Christ is to those who are perishing foolishness. So you just encouraged me. I guess I must be doing what Jesus said because you are responding that that's ridiculous. So we learn that Jesus came to reach people. And if he came to reach people, right, and we're committing to following him, where do I fit in there? The last display of his Authority is found in his compassion for a suffering person. And then this weird command for silence. Compassion and then a command of silence. So notice, verse 40, and a leper came to him. Wait a minute, a leper? Leprosy is a terrible disease. It still happens. And, And in the Old Testament, they had many different forms of leprosy. It's kind of like reading a, a dermatologist book. If you read Leviticus 13 and 14, two whole chapters on leprosy. Leprosy could be ringworms, scalp conditions, itches, burns, but it was this inc- usually incurable disease. The scribes who had started writing about this had 72 different kinds of leprosy. And you're like, all right, so, you know, you get eczema or whatever, you put a little lotion on it. No, no. If you had leprosy, listen to what Leviticus says. The person with leprosy must wear torn clothes. 
So some of you young people are going, yeah, that's what I told my mom. I always tear my jeans. No, no. Torn clothes, and there's a reason for it. <clears throat> Your hair must be unkempt. Don't even go there. Don't even... Cover the lower part of your face and cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as he has the infection, he must live alone outside the camp. What would that be like? What, what a painful place to be in, to be a victim of leprosy. You can't live with your family. You can't sleep in your own bed. You can't be around people. If you get near people, you have to make yourself look messy and yell, unclean, don't get near me. The scribes had a tradition that you couldn't get within 50 paces of someone. That's why in the book of Luke it says 10 lepers approached Jesus from a distance. They knew the social norms, but not this guy. This guy decides he's just going to burst through. Now, at that time, if a leper approached someone, they would get yelled at, get back, or the person would recoil and run. Get away from me, right? But notice that this guy, it says he comes to Jesus. Now, I'm sure everybody else went scattering, right? He falls on his knees before him. And he says to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, how does he know that? The people don't, they are, who is this guy? But this little fella, faith is beginning to well up inside of him. He's starting to wait, wait a minute. He's not like the other bears. This Jesus has power. He has authority. And I love what he does here because I get this. I relate to this. I don't sometimes question whether God is able to do something, right? Like, you know, you're going through a trial and somebody says, you know, God's able to deliver you. You go, save your breath. I already know that. It's not a question of whether he's able. It's whether he's willing, right? And so this guy cuts to the chase with Jesus. He goes, I know you're able, but Lord, if you're willing, and he's begging him, he's on his knees, right? Now look at, the, the, look at Jesus' response to this. You know, you can't help but, I hope, you can't help but love Jesus, Moved with compassion. That's one word in Greek. It's, it's his inner bowels are, are moved, right? He stretches out his hand and he touches him. You're like, Jesus, don't touch him. You're going to get, he's contagious. And Jesus goes, no, I'm contagious. My holiness is contagious. You know, it's really weird. In, in some Greek manuscripts, it's, it doesn't say moved with compassion. It says Jesus was moved with anger. Right? And you go, wait a minute, why? what was Jesus angry? Like, why are you running up to me? You could get me sick. And I love what one commentary said. No, he wasn't angry at the guy. He's angry at the curse. He's angry at the, at the ravishes that sin have brought upon mankind. And he wants to blast away this leprosy. But either way, it just gives us a, a sense in which, wow, no wonder people sing about Jesus as nobody cares for me like Jesus. Nobody loves me like Jesus. Listen, we're messed up and many people come to church because they know they're messed up, right? Now we can all smile and go, oh, hi, brother, praise the Lord. We all have issues, right? But I hope that you find it enormously comforting and practically helpful to go, bring your issues to Jesus. 
spill the beans, pour it out, beg them, tell them you're crazy, tell them you're suicidal, tell them whatever you're feeling, and know that he's not going to say, you are messed up. He's full of compassion. And see him reach out to this leper and say, I'm willing to be cleansed. Now, when we read these type of miracles, I think that we are also supposed to always look for a spiritual lesson. Some of you need to know this. You got sin leprosy. And I don't know who told you that going to church will cure you of your sin or say a few rosaries and you're good to go. But that does not forgive sin. The only way that your sins can be forgiven, according to the Bible, is through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And so before you leave this morning, I'm not sure what you believe about your sin, but if you're starting to feel the weight of guilt, like, yeah, I know that I have slept around, I have told lies, I have done things of which I'm ashamed, nobody else knows about them, but I'm feeling heavy about my guilt, then the same way, just say, Lord, I want to be cleansed. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful to cleanse us. And that's the initial stage of getting on the journey is coming to Jesus. How many people say, oh, I can't, you know, when I get my act together, I'm going to start, you know, no, you don't get your act together. You come messed up and he gets your act together. You bring him your junk. You bring him your leprosy. And he goes, I'm willing, I love you, be cleansed. But then Jesus does something really weird. He tells the guy, all right, now listen. Sternly warned him. That is a strong word. He's like, don't you tell anybody. See that you say nothing to anyone. The Old Testament said, if you got cleansed, you went to the priest and did a sacrifice. Now, <clears throat> but he went out and became, began to proclaim it freely. When I was a new Christian, I had a friend from Jamaica. He taught me a song. I said I wasn't going to tell anybody, but I couldn't keep it to myself what the Lord has done for me. And so, why would Jesus tell people, don't tell anyone? This is sometimes referred to as the messianic secret. Why is Jesus, be quiet, don't tell people who I am. Don't announce it. Well, as we're going through Mark, we'll, we'll see this over and over again, but I want to mention three things real quick. Number one, because if Jesus just busted out as Messiah right then, other people had already tried that. We learned from Josephus and extra-biblical literature that there were a number of guys that said, hey, I'm the Messiah, and thousands of people gathered around him. And then the Romans just got a bunch of soldiers and horses and cavalry and just went in there and killed him. So I think from a political standpoint, Jesus is like, it's not time. But I think there's a bigger reason, and that is this. Because throughout this book, as we're clarifying Jesus, he is not the Jesus that, that many people think he is. Now maybe today you think he's like Mr. Rogers or just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Oh, blessed are you, right? But back then, they thought, hey, Messiah is going to be a, a bad dude. He's going to kill Romans. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how I roll. I'm a silent, meek, suffering servant. In fact, Matthew expounds on this greatly. As Jesus, Matthew says, told people, don't tell who I am, Matthew says that's because he wanted to fulfill what Isaiah said. Isaiah had said this about God's suffering servant. Behold my servant, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. We just saw that when he was baptized. God says, I'll put my spirit on him, but he won't quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A battered reed he won't break. A smoldering wick he won't put out. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So I think, think we need to understand that Jesus was a silent, tender, suffering servant because he's going, he's going, I'm going there to save you. So for now, I need you to be quiet. There will come a time when I want you to go out and proclaim me. So as, as you and I encounter Jesus this morning and we see his command of scripture and his confrontation of Satan, I want you to think about two things. If he has this authority, then my suggestion would be for you to do a little checking of what you believe. Because the moment you find that what you believe and what he said are two different things, you got some thinking to do, right? So you say, well, my church believes this. Well, but Jesus said this. I remember telling one lady at the Great American Diner, I used to witness to this waitress all the time, I said, Jesus said you must be born again. Ah, oh, that born again stuff, that's crazy. I said, here it is. I pulled out a Bible, I said, here it is right here. She said, oh, you wrote that. <laughs> but for some of you, maybe you're just irreligious. You're like, I don't even know what I believe. Well, I want to plead with you. You better believe what he believes. But some of you, it's even harder because you are religious. You go, I go to this church or that church, but your religious church is teaching you stuff that contradicts from the Bible. Jesus said, why do you forsake the word of God for your traditions? People are telling you, you got to be good to get into heaven. That's not what the Bible says. People might tell you, you got to go to purgatory. You got to do this or that or keep this sacrament or do this. Jesus hung on the cross. He said, it's finished. I'm the Lamb of God. He took away all your sins. And he that believes is freely forgiven. So I want to encourage you as you clarify Jesus that you'll become more confident that that he's telling the truth and you can trust him. But also think about his confrontation with Satan. That happened in yours and my life. You might not have known it, but if you're a Christian, the Bible says, I will send you to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And when you got saved, Colossians chapter 1 says, we should give thanks to him who transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now I belong to Jesus. I'm so grateful for that because I feel and I smell the smoke of the demons. Don't you feel the oppression and the darkness of this world? Don't you ever feel that Satan is just coming against you, against your kids, against this country, against everything that's good and right? And I am so thankful that the book of 1 John says the Son of God has come to destroy the works of Satan. And the Bible says that we are in Christ who is true and the evil one cannot touch us. So if demons are messing with you, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Sometimes demons mess with us because we're messing with sin. Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So if you're hating people and you won't forgive, it says, don't give the devil a place. But praise God for the authority of Jesus. So you don't have to get out there and say, devil, I'll beat you down. But I say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. My Lord Jesus, he has brought me to himself. And I don't have to believe your lies. I can resist them with the shield of faith. And I can pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to protect me. And I pray over my children. Lord, be a wall of fire around them. Be a hedge of thorns like you were to Job. Protect us, O Lord. Let us not enter temptation. Praise Jesus, amen, that he's delivered us. And then if Jesus cured Mary or uh, Peter's mother-in-law to serve him, how's that, how's that coming for you? You serving? Some of you are too busy serving. 
You need to set aside some time. But some of you, like I find myself, I'm good at serving. It's just I like to serve me. <laughs> and Jesus is going, all right, let's get, let's get past that. I came to serve. Now will you serve? And then finally, I hope that you'll find great comfort in the compassion of Jesus. I just thank the Lord that no one understands me like Jesus. Nobody loves me like Jesus. The songwriter said, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. We're reading our manuals and going to this and doing that and we're skipping one big step. The Bible says we don't have a high priest who doesn't sympathize, so draw near to the throne of grace. See Jesus saying, I know what you're going through. And you're like, heal me right now. And you might say, well, not yet. But I want you to trust me, right? Don't, don't confuse my patience for my absence. You know, as my son-in-law and I were talking, he's been out of work for six months, but he sent me a great quote from Augustine. Jesus doesn't ask us to lean on him, and then he vanishes. So we're learning how to lean. We're learning who he is. And I hope that your faith is strengthened. You're going, man, my Jesus has all authority over sin and hell and demons, and he's cleansed me, and now I'm going to go forth, and I'm going to serve him. Amen? Lord, maybe there's someone here who has not yet come to Jesus. If that's you right now, the best you know how, just say, Lord Jesus, if you're willing, you could cleanse me from my sin. I believe that you died and shed your blood for me to be saved. And I'm willing not only to be your follower, but to tell others and proclaim to my family and friends how God had mercy on me. Thank you, Lord. Reach down and touch all who are hurting today, all who are troubled in their spirit, all who are weak, all who are sick. Thank you, Lord, so much for our Christian community. May we love each other as we love Christ together. May our children be kept from evil. May our grandchildren, and may we love our enemies and extend the gospel, and may you expand this church, not because we want to build a kingdom, but because you came to seek and save the lost. Oh, Lord, until you come, may many more come under the influence of the gospel, especially as we anticipate Easter. May we be praying for eyes to be open as you save men and women, boys and girls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.